His mercy is more. Praise God for that. All of us who are believers certainly know what that means in our own lived out experience. We know who we were and who we are now through Christ. Throughout my teenage years, I worked at a grocery store called Food Lion, and I'm not sure if those are around in Georgia. I haven't seen one yet, but I think they might be around here. Uh, There were quite a few of them in North Carolina. That's a big chain of grocery stores in North Carolina. And when I first started, so the latter part of my teenage years, I worked there throughout, throughout that entire time. And when I first started with Food Lion, I worked in the produce section. So I got to learn a lot about the different kinds of fruits and vegetables. I remember being surprised, really, at two things in particular, how many different kinds of greens there are, and even more, how many, even overwhelmingly so, how many different kinds of apples there are in a grocery store. And one of the responsibilities that we had working in the produce department was to examine the fruits and vegetables as we put them out on the floor. Sometimes they did not come in looking very nice, and sometimes they had to go back to the back. We needed to make sure that they were good, that they were fresh. We needed to inspect the produce. And that's what we're going to do this morning. That's what we're asked to do as we come to the end of Romans chapter 6, verses 20 to 23 to inspect the produce. So that's the title for the sermon this morning, Inspect the Produce. In our passage last week, which was verses 15 to 19, we saw that every human being on the planet, every single person you've known or will know, and all of us here, every person on earth is a slave. So just to let you know, Paul says this clearly in verse 16. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. This is a maxim. This is, this is an axiom. This is something that's just true, a fact of life. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So it is really an either-or. We are either a slave of one or a slave of the other. And here's the thing. There are no exceptions. You fit into one of those two categories. This one is black and white. We recognize there's much gray and nuance in real practical lived out life. This one is black and white. You are either one or the other. Today, as we finish the chapter, we come to the end of chapter 6, we're in those last three verses, Paul focuses on the produce, the results, the fruit, the outcome of these two forms of slavery. So we've been given these two forms of slavery, these two masters, these two enslavements, and now as Paul comes to these latter four verses, he wants us to see the fruit or the produce of those two slaveries. He includes these final sentences about the fruit of each slavery in order 
to give a reason for his charge in verse 19. So you will remember from last week, or you can just go there now in verse 19, that Paul gives a charge, a command. He tells his readers what they are to do, an imperative. And what we're finding as we come into verse 20 and the following three verses, what we're finding is the reason for, the grounds for that charge. So Paul says in verse 19, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So this is what they are to do. Now they are to do this. They are to present their members in this way. That's where we ended last week. Now... In verses 20 to 23, Paul answers the question, why? And as he does that, as I said a moment ago, he gives the reason. He answers the question, why? As he does that, what he's doing is giving the motive. He's grounding the charge. He's grounding the call, the imperative. He's grounding it in a motivation. In these final verses, It is as though Paul is putting before us two bowls of fruit. So I want you to picture that. These last four verses. Paul sets two bowls of fruit before you on a table. One bowl is filled with rotten, disgusting fruit. And the other with fresh and delicious fruit. I like to think of it as a bowl of perfectly ripened, deep red, homegrown tomatoes, just sort of sparkling in the light, the kind that my granny used to make sandwiches with, just tomatoes, mayonnaise, salt, and pepper. Maybe some of you know about that. This is just a bowl of beautiful, fresh fruit, and right next to it is this bowl of disgusting, nasty, rotten fruit. And that is what Paul essentially is doing in chapter 6, verses 20 to 23. He's, he's asking the question, where, or answering the question rather, where does sin lead? What does it produce? What is its fruit? And then in contrast to that, where does obedience to Christ lead? Faith in Christ is equated with obedience to Christ in Romans. We get that from the very beginning. To obey the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. That's why Paul preaches the gospel all over the Roman world. is in order that there might be the obedience of faith taking shape in the hearts and minds of people. And so, really, it's synonymous. To trust Christ is to obey Christ. To trust Christ, to believe in Christ, is to come under his lordship and submit to him as master, to become his slave. So where does sin lead? Where does obedience to Christ lead? And before we get into this passage this morning, let me just say, I think there are two big effects that this passage should have among us. Two big effects. For the Christian, a passage like this is a means of perseverance. Now let me say this. Every Christian will persevere to the end. We believe that. The Bible's clear on that. 
Every Christian will persevere to the end. Every Christian will be preserved to the end. But here's the thing we sometimes miss. That happens with certain means. In other words, God uses means in order to meet that end. And so a text like this, the presentation of of two bowls of fruit like this, functions as a means of our own preservation. It functions as a means of us persevering to the end. So Christians are to read this and be encouraged to persevere to the end, to hold fast, to stay the course, to not fall away. And of course, we know true Christians cannot fall away. But passages like this keep us in the way of Christ. For the unbeliever among us this morning, and I don't know the makeup of uh, everyone here today who is and who is not truly a believer, if Christ were to return this very hour, some of us would be with him, would meet him in the air, as it said, as Paul tells the Thessalonians, some would not. Some would be judged by him. Some are in Christ this morning, and probably some among us are not. So here's the effect for the unbeliever. As you're here this morning, if you are, the path you're on is put before you in its reality. The path you're on, with all of its nasty disgusting, rotten fruit is put before you in truth. You see, Satan is a great liar. He's been doing it for thousands of years, and he is a very crafty angel of darkness who presents himself as an angel of light. So he has convinced you that you actually are looking at a bowl of pretty nice fruit as you look at your own life. But what this text does is shatters that and tells you that the path you're on is indeed rotten. And this is put in contrast to the path that God calls you to in his gospel, in the good news of Christ. He he puts forth a call. He calls you to trust in his son and to leave the path of darkness, to leave the path of rotten fruit, to come over to the path of of sparkling, beautiful, fresh fruit. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. So I do want to read all of Romans chapter 6. I think it helps us. And by the way, the most important thing we can do anyway is read God's word. So we're going to do that, read all of Romans 6. For those of us who went through Genesis, if you were here during that time, this should be nothing. This is nothing, right? I mean, most chapters in Genesis were longer than this, some two or three times longer. So we're going to read all of chapter 6, and I want you to follow very closely the logic of Paul all the way into our passage for today. So here we are, Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is the word of God. It is holy and it is perfect and profitable for God's people. This is our food. This is our food. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace 
may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That verse is really a summary of everything that precedes it. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments. We talked about that being or weapons for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. He's already said that once. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. So here we go with our passage for today. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can go ahead and be seated. It's always nice to see some of these very familiar verses in their context. You know, some, uh, Romans 6.23 is probably one of the earliest verses that I ever memorized or just knew. You didn't even really memorize it intentionally. It just was part of the air I breathed as, as a kid in church. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's always nice to see these verses emerge 
out of their context. They're not just taglines, but they're part of arguments. They are part of uh, entire chunks of, uh, of particular books that we read, just like John 3.16. So let's pray and let's ask for the Lord's grace as we come to this passage that he would help us, that he would help me to preach clearly and help all of us to listen and to be receptive to what the Holy Spirit is doing here among us today. Father, we are humbled by the opportunity that we have to gather here this morning and to be under your word. Lord, it is a joy to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. It is such a joy to look into the faces of people who, like us, have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. God, what, what an incredible thing to see the life of God in one another. Lord, we just thank you for that, the fellowship that we have as Christians. And we thank you for the member service that we'll have tonight, the time to come together as those who have covenanted here with this local church, who've committed to this body, Lord, just to be together and to, to pray and listen to your word and think through issues and just to spend time. Lord, we thank you for that opportunity. Lord, and I pray for those who are attending Four Corners, Lord, that you would give them wisdom as they consider whether or not to become members here. Lord, I pray that you would continue to show them a biblical case for church membership. I pray that you would help us as elders to shepherd them through their questions and and concerns. And Lord, I pray that we would not be formalistic as a church for the sake of formality, but Lord, that we would shepherd biblically and that we would practice membership and church discipline and all the various facets of our eldering, that we would practice that with love and with a view to the heart and to worship you and to care for your people. So God, would you give us the grace to do that as we prepare for tonight, just as we think about these things, would you give us grace for that, Lord? And now as we come to hear your word preached, we ask that it would be clear, we ask that you would use it in each of us to bring transformation, to remind us of who we are, and to point us to our future hope. Lord, I pray for conversions today. I pray for any among us who is not a believer, that you would show them that clearly, that you would regenerate their hearts and that they would turn from sin and trust Jesus Christ, that they would move from being under the lordship of sin to being under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the risen king. And I pray for our children, Lord, in the back, that you would be with them as they learn, and the children in here, Lord, that they would see clearly what's being said, that you would help them to focus, and God, we pray for their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. As he frequently does throughout his letters, Paul here gives us the old versus the new. That's what we see throughout Paul's letters. He wants to remind his readers of who they were and in order to tell them who they now are. And so this old versus new is very much what we have in verses 20 to 23. And so our two points for this morning should be pretty easy to remember or to write down. We have the old fruit 
and the new fruit. As we inspect the produce, we want to look at, inspect, examine the old fruit and then the new fruit. So let's look first at the old fruit. Look with me at verses 20 to 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul recognizes here that there is indeed a sort of, sort of so-called freedom involved in a life of sin. Paul admits that. In one sense, to be in sin is to be free. In a sense. A life apart from God's grace. A life that is not united to Jesus Christ by faith. Such a life is, as Paul says here, free in regard to righteousness. But what Paul is essentially saying is that such a life is unrelated to righteousness. It is devoid of righteousness. It is not under that master. That's all Paul is saying. It is under another master. It's really just another way of saying that you can only be under the dominion of one master. You cannot serve two masters. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew chapter 6. We read that, I cited that last week. You can only be under the dominion of one master. So that means that in slavery to one master, you are free from the control of the other by necessity. So nothing gleeful, nothing truly free here, just free in this sense. The theologian and biblical commentator John Murray describes this so-called state of freedom this way. And by the way, if you're an unbeliever this morning, this, this is you. It, for those of us who are Christians now, this is the way it was for us. They were carefree in respect of the demands of righteousness with undivided heart and a single eye, they were the bondservants of sin. And that was the only mastery they knew. One of the things that shows us that we are believers, that we've truly been saved, is that we come to experience uh, something different than an undivided heart. You see, before we come to Christ, we have an undivided heart because we are entirely given over to sin. But then we get saved. God wrecks us. God transforms us. He, he comes in and regenerates our hearts. And we turn from sin and trust him. Repentance and faith. We become new. And all of a sudden now, we turn around with machine guns in hand and start blasting that old man or woman. That old self. We didn't do that before. All of a sudden now we, we hate sin. We, we don't want to do that anymore. We want to uproot that and, and purge ourselves of that. That's the experience that we have when we become Christians. Not so 
for the non-Christian. The tension, the division, if there is any, is between one path of sin or another. It takes all different kinds of forms. But self-righteousness and love of self and disregard for God and lack of gratitude to God are always there. Paul begins verse 20 with the words, when you were. He is talking about the former life of his readers, this old life with its old fruit. And so he poses the question, what fruit were you getting at that time? He wants his readers to consider it. Think about it. Think about that old life. What fruit were you getting then? In that old life apart from Christ, in that old life in Adam, in that old life of enslavement to sin, Paul is saying, inspect the fruit. Examine your old life's fruit. And at this point, I tend to agree with commentators who divide the first part of verse 21 into two sentences. So the ESV takes it all as one sentence. And I tend to agree with those who take it in two sentences. So instead of what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed, which is one big question, it may be better to read it as a question and answer. So something like this. What fruit were you getting at that time? Question mark. Answer, that of which you are now ashamed. So there's a little bit of confusion there in terms of the punctuation how the Greek text is to be rendered. But I lean towards taking it here as two sentences. A question followed by the answer. What fruit were you getting at that time? And then Paul answers it. That of which you are now ashamed. So let's stop here for a moment. Shame. A life of sin is a life of shame. It is a life of shameful deeds. Deeds that are so shameful that once we become Christians, we are ashamed to even mention them. They are repulsive to us in the now as we think about the then. So Ephesians 5, 11 to 12, Paul has this very mindset. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And then he goes on to say this, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. One of the things I try to listen to regularly is a podcast by Albert Moeller. He does a podcast daily called The Briefing. It's, it's really helpful. It helps uh, us to think through headlines, helps us think through what's going on in the news. And one of the things that uh, I respect about Moeller is he'll get to these points where it, there's certain aspects of an article or something, and he'll, he'll say, I'm not even going to talk about the, that. I'm not, I'm not going to use that language on the briefing. And the reason I'm, I'm not going to go into the sordid details of that particular article. Why? Because of this. There is a, a sense of of, of shame even about talking about such things. What's interesting here is that it's only as a believer 
that we are able to look back and see the truth about our former life. When we become Christians, we get glasses of clarity. I wear contacts, I have terrible vision, and I've been wearing glasses since I was, I think, in the sixth or seventh grade. And I I really do remember, and and most of us who have glasses uh, recognize this, I really do remember the first time that I got my glasses prescription, I realized how blind I was. And uh, I put the glasses on, and the first thing you notice is you can see leaves. Uh, You can actually see the contours of leaves. You did not realize it before. You're just stuck in it. But then afterwards, you see how blind you were. Only the believer is able to look back and see their former life in that way. We weren't ashamed. Listen to this. We weren't ashamed while we were doing it. We weren't ashamed while we were doing those deeds. Now, you might say, well, that's not really true. I mean, there's shame all over the place. Well, we might have been embarrassed if someone found out. There is, of course, self-loathing and self-pity and all of that, not denying any of that. But within ourselves, we were quite happy to press on. The transformation is now we look back with disgust and shame over that life. As Christians now, we look back at our old life with this sense of shame. And I want you to notice that Paul doesn't present that as a bad thing. Let me just kind of make that clear. It's a little implication here. Paul does not present this consideration of our former shameful life of shameful deeds, he does not present that consideration, that reflection, that contemplation as a bad thing. Like we should just forget our old life. That's not what this text suggests. Considering the old shameful life that God saved us from, reminds us who we are. It's an important part of our understanding of our identity. It reminds us how gracious God is, the one who has forgiven, been forgiven much. And it prevents us from sinking back into that disgusting, stinking slime that defined our old life. Calvin describes the benefit of reflecting on the old life in this way. Indeed, the godly, as soon as they begin to be illuminated by the Spirit of Christ and the preaching of the gospel, do freely acknowledge their past life, which they have lived without Christ, to have been worthy of condemnation." And so far are they from endeavoring to excuse it that on the contrary, they feel ashamed of themselves. Yea, further, they call to mind the remembrance of their own disgrace that being thus ashamed, they may more truly and more readily be humbled before God. Part of the problem is we may not do this enough We probably live in a sentimental, watered-down Christian culture in which this sort of thing is non-existent. Clearly, we see here that 
there is that experience of reflection on that old shameful life. And I would argue that this is the starting point for humility. We're going to be discussing the elders, deacons, and gospel community group leaders will be meeting this afternoon. Please pray for us. We'll be meeting right before the the member service. And we're going through a book together called Gospel Powered Humility. And we're talking about what it means to be humble. And one of the, th- what, one of the big things that the author does is he takes the, the reader to Romans chapters 1 to 3. And his purpose in doing that is just to show who we are apart from Christ and what God has done to save us. That, that the only reason we are here and not there is because of God's grace. And we're not going to think that way. We're not going to think in those lowly, humble, meek, non-entitled terms unless we consider who we were. This is humility 101. This is where humility begins. And Paul goes on to say that the old life of slavery to sin is not just shameful. So we're talking about fruit. It's not just shameful shameful when viewed rightly, but it is also headed to one single place, one single destination, one single bowl of fruit, death. Inspect the fruit, Paul says. Inspect the fruit of your old life, and what you will find is shame and death. That's what we have. For the end of those things is death, he says. Every beautiful thing that captures our lusts will one day rot in the earth. Let me say that to you, brother, struggling with lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, sexually. Every beautiful thing that captures your lusts will one day Rot in the earth. And listen, the lusts that follow after such things will likewise rot away. They will perish. And those who live by those lusts will be destroyed with them. That's exactly what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.17. Listen to his words. The world is passing away along with its desires, its lusts, its passions. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's the truth of it. Death is the end of it all. And this death is ultimately an eternal death. When we compare this with eternal life, which we'll talk about in a moment, we know that this death here is an ultimate kind of thing. We're talking here about eternal death. Death that is forever. The second death, eternal separation from God. Yes, in great torment in hell. That's the second death. That's what you read about at the end of Revelation when the Apostle John writes about the lake of fire. We're not talking about mere metaphor here. Jesus describes hell as a place of immense suffering and torment. And that is where you are headed if you do not know Christ. It is a real place where real souls are this very hour 
where real souls go and where real bodies raised to meet their souls will spend eternity. That's sobering, but that's reality. That's what the Bible teaches about the end result of sin. That's where it's going. One final note before we move on to our second point. Although Paul is talking about the former state, he's talking about where we were before we became Christians, what, where we were headed, what our life was like from God's perspective. Regardless of how we experienced it, that's what it was in truth, in reality, when all the deceptions are peeled away. So yes, that's what Paul is talking about, that former state. But I want you to notice something here that's very important, Christian. We can also apply this as Christians to individual acts That's not Paul's main purpose here, but I think it's an implication of it. We can apply this fruit to individual acts. And what I mean is this, sinful acts bring shame and death. Presenting your members to sin breeds shame and death in our lives. Shame and death in our marriages. Shame and death in the hearts of our children. Shame and death in our workplaces, our neighborhoods. That's what sin does. That's what sin produces. It is part of sin's DNA. It can't do otherwise. So when you think about giving your members over to sin again, this afternoon or tomorrow evening or whenever, consider this sobering reminder of what is happening in that moment. So that's the old fruit. Now we come to the new fruit. Look at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We've got to love the words, but now, especially after reading all that. But now. We must remember that the gospel is good news, right? We can't just dwell on the bad news. We can't just dwell on what's wrong. The gospel is always biblical preaching and biblical teaching and biblical conversation is always moving towards the good news, but it never neglects the bad news. Both wedded together. But we must come to the good news, the but now of the Bible, the but now of the Christ event. But now, or as Ephesians 2, 4 says, but God. Paul explains our new state as being free from sin, but being slaves to God. Now, let me say this, because this is really important. We are not slaves to a system. We're not slaves to a code, not slaves to a cause or an idea. We're slaves to a person. It's a beautiful thing. We serve at the pleasure of a person, a being in three persons. We 
serve as slaves of this God. We serve a person who sent his son to die for us. That's amazing. That's the reason why when we came to the end of verse or the beginning of verse 19, Paul was like, you know, look, I'm using this metaphor of slavery, but I'm just, you know, I'm just I'm speaking in a human way because of your natural limitations. Really, I mean, can we even conceive of this as slavery, considering that the one to whom we are enslaved or under whom we are enslaved gave his son to die for us? It is slavery, and we shouldn't neglect that, but it's this kind of slavery. God is Lord over us as the one who made the ultimate sacrifice in giving his son to die for us. The perfect picture, Abraham and Isaac. And we must remember as slaves of Christ that we are slaves of the one who hung naked, bleeding, mocked, dying on the cross to save us. Our king died for us. Our master, our Lord, died so that we could become his slaves and be freed from sin. That's what we're talking about here. Not a system. Slaves of a person. Three persons in one God. Paul draws the contrast here on two levels. So remember, we're thinking about the new fruit as opposed to the old fruit. He draws the contrast here on two levels. First, there's the immediate fruit. And second, there is the ultimate fruit. As for the immediate fruit, shame is replaced with sanctification. Do you see that? Do you see the contrast? Shame is replaced with sanctity of life. Shame is replaced with holiness. We're not just talking about a contrast between the secular or the profane and the holy. We're talking about a contrast between what is absolutely shameful, so shameful we wouldn't even want to talk about it, give words to describe it, compared with being set apart as God's holy vessels. Sanctity. And in terms of the ultimate fruit, eternal death is replaced with eternal life. The way Paul describes it here is that our sanctification is the fruit of our conversion. This is the fruit of becoming a Christian. Sanctification. We progressively grow in Christ-likeness, in holiness. The sanctification itself is the fruit. I want you to see that. The sanctification itself is the fruit. And that just makes me think of this. What joy there is in growing in the Lord. And sometimes we just, we just forget that. You know, it's, this is what we should do, we ought to do. And of course, there, that, that imperatival aspect is always there in, in the Bible. But just consider that. How much joy is there in growing in the Lord? Just think about it. As you experience growth from God, through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, What joy it is to become more like your Lord, the one who loves you and gave himself for you. What joy there is to experience the fruit of sanctification, though it is not yet complete. 
But the greatest joy that we should receive from our sanctification is knowing where it is headed. That's the greatest joy. As we are experiencing sanctification, the Christian life is full of joy. And here's why. Because as we are down in the dirt, experiencing the the sanctification that the Holy Spirit brings. And recently we had this prayer request about Vodi Bakum and and the the heart issues that he's having and trying to get back over to the the United States to get get the health care that he needs. And he commented on his uh, Facebook page about how it's in moments like that down in the dirt that we grow the most. And yet we have joy in that. Joy in the midst of that suffering. Joy in the midst of those pains. Joy in the midst of that uncertainty. So we have all of that, that joy that surpasses understanding, that peace that surpasses understanding, that joy that overwhelms and overshadows our circumstances. But then to think, on top of all of that, that it's headed to something certain. And that the very experience of that sanctification assures us that we are indeed headed there. To experience sanctification is to be on the road to a particular place. And that place is called here, in those beautiful terms, eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 4 tells us basically what this eternal life will be. And we know from John 17, eternal life is at its core knowing God, knowing Christ. But in terms of our experiential existence, in terms of our our bodies and our souls and so forth, we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That's what's gonna happen one day is what's mortal. Every aspect of what's mortal, every aspect of what comes down from Adam since the fall will be swallowed up. That's the language of devouring will be swallowed up by life. Life will swallow our mortality and digest it for good. A new heaven and a new earth, no more pain, not a single ounce. See, our sanctification will be over then. There won't be any more dirt. There won't be any more valleys. No need. We'll be perfectly like Christ, and we will live forever in perfect bliss, in perfect communion with Christ. This is as certain as Jacob and his 12 sons coming from Abraham. It's as certain as Joshua leading the people of God into Canaan. It's as certain as the Christ descending from David because God keeps his promises. All of that took place and all of this will too. No more sin with all of its rotten fruit. I want to close this morning by looking at this last very well-known verse, verse 23. I want to fold it into this last point. 
It's a summary. It's a conclusion. It's a concluding verse. It's a summary of what Paul has just said in verses 20 to 22. It says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we come to the end of chapter 6 this morning, so we'll move on into chapter 7 next time. But as we come to the end of this chapter, I want to focus on two final parting details here as we leave this passage. First, notice that Paul doesn't say that the wages of sin is death and the wages from God are eternal life or is eternal life. He he doesn't do that. It's it's kind of strange. You know, it makes you wonder, why why didn't he just use the, the, the same word, wages? Well, of course we know why. One of these is earned. This is important on both both sides. One of these is earned, whereas the other is purely a gift. Charles Hodge explains this very well in this very concise statement. He says, The life thus graciously produced and graciously sustained is at last graciously crowned with eternal life. It is grace from beginning to end. There are rewards in heaven. I think the New Testament is clear on this. But here's the thing. From beginning to end, it's, it, none of it will be meritorious in nature. There will be no sense in which God looks at us and we're there, puffed up chest, and we're just sort of counting our deeds and, and there before God presenting our successes. There are no resumes in heaven. Zero. We stand before God with no merit of our own. It is all grace. It is all free gift. And that's why it's going to take forever to praise God. Because it's all gift. It's all gracious. But listen to this. For everyone in hell. This is very important. As you think about the justice of hell. For everyone in hell, they will most certainly deserve to be there. There will be no one in heaven who deserves to be there. Everyone in hell will deserve to be there. Maybe you haven't considered that. Just as surely as it is just to pay a worker his wages... To pay a soldier, in this sense, this word has that connotation, paying a soldier, which, by the way, goes back to the master presenting arms or the soldier presenting arms to his master and so forth. But just as surely as it is just to pay a worker or a soldier for his wages or for his work to pay his wages, so too is it just for sinners to receive death. The penalty for sin is death in God's just world. Whether, it doesn't matter whether you agree with that. That's irrelevant. God has made the world. And to sin against him, he has said the penalty for sin is death. And it is perfectly just such that the angels of God praise him 
for his justice in condemning and his justice and mercy in saving. In fact, they look into his mercy and grace of saving sinners with much wonder because they just don't understand. It is perfectly just for God to send sinners to their eternal death. It is the fruit of sin. There will be no case to be made in hell. There will be no marshalling of a legal team in hell. The best lawyers in heaven or on earth could never present a case on behalf of the defense that would in any way come close to overturning the justice of eternal death for rebellion against God and trampling on his glory. Hell is real, and every sinner apart from Christ will one day go there. The second detail is this phrase, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the first detail that I wanted you to notice from this very last verse is this this, this difference between wages and gift. The second detail I want you to get before we close this morning is this last phrase, in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how Paul ends the chapter. Of course, we would have to say, this, this links to the last point, of course we would have to say that there is no merit. Why? Because our, our very standing comes from, through, and within another. Do you see that? In Christ Jesus our Lord. This fruit only comes in that bowl. This fruit only comes in that sphere, which is to be in that person, to be through, from, and in Christ. That's it. That's why there's no merit. Because the only reason we have any standing before God is because we're in his son. Our entire identity and future destiny have to do with one thing. Folks, one thing. Just one thing. Only one thing matters in the end. Are we or are we not in Christ Jesus? That's it. The end of the day. And let me say this to all of us as parents. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter where your kids go to college or where they work. I can remember when I was a, a small boy, my mom, I won't say particular professions because I don't want to offend anyone who may have that profession. Got to be careful about those things. But my mom would name certain professions and she would say, I don't care if you do this or you do that or you do this or you do that. Just do it. Do it with all your heart and do it for God. That's it. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter if your kids reach up to some status or some success that you think they need to have. What matters in the end is are they in Christ or not. And as parents, if there's anything we're doing Anything we're doing that is not fueling that train to that destination, stop. And anything we're not doing that we ought to be doing to see that train through, we can't save them. 
But we have a great responsibility. We have a great task. And we have lots of time. And lots of energy. This is our calling as parents. Are we in Christ? Or not? At the end of the day, that's everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it reminds us of reality, the truth from your perspective, the real world, the real human nature, the real gospel and its very real power, the very real destinations of eternal death and eternal life. The reality of shame and the wondrous, joyful reality of sanctification. Father, we praise you. We praise you that you have made these things clear to us through your word. The question is, will we listen? Will we hear? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Isn't that what our Lord said so often? in his ministry. Father, we pray that all of us here would have ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen.